Check one, check one, two, three. Hey everybody, it's Michael Helms, also known as Michael the Sound Guy, and this is the Location Sound Podcast. You know, each episode we talk with location sound mixers, boom ops, and other industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location, whether it's for feature and independent films, TV commercials, interviews, any time where dialogue from actors is recorded. I started my career in the recording studios in New York City with some of the big artists back in the day, and later on projects for networks like HBO, Sci-Fi Channel, and the Cartoon Network. As time went by, I got out of the studio and began working in production sound. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, thanks for joining us. All right, my guest today is a production sound mixer, producer, director, author, and so much more. He's based out of Los Angeles, California. Please welcome Jay Menez. All right. Thank you, Michael. Now, Jay, we always kind of start the show off by asking when you're mixing on set, what's in your audio kit? So tell us about your mics, your mixer, power distro, and everything in between. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, uh, I love this part because I'm a gearhead. And I like talking about my gear. So I guess the uh, main part of my kit is a Sound Devices 688. I had the 664 and the 633 also in the past. That's, that's a unit I really love. As far as wireless goes, I've got, I use Electrosonics SRCs, uh, three SRCs, dual receivers. And then the SMWBs for the transmitters. And SSM, which is a little microtransmitter, which is really great for, for hiding it in talent. And the battery lasts a heck of a long time. So I'm really happy with that. I have a, I think it's an SL6, the backpack that goes on the 688, which does all my, it really takes place of all that cabling in there so that there's really no cabling. And it has a slot for an NP1 battery. And that has really cleaned up my kit a lot. So there are essentially no wires back there. And then as far as the boom gear goes, I have a KTEC 10, 12 foot uh, carbon boom. I use the mainly the 416 outside, Sennheiser MKH 416, and then the MKH 50 for my indoor stuff. And those have proven pretty bulletproof to me. I know there's some, some other mics out there that crisper and in some situations may sound better but those are really my desert island mics right there between those two i get everything done never had a complaint and uh, they've just been solid workhorses for me nice and what kind of lav mics do you like to use oh cos 11s all the way i've got about half a dozen of those things yeah they're just they're just really clean i've played with the countrymen's and the dpas but I just think overall, for me, the, I really like the Sankins. All right. What kind of time code boxes do you like to use? Goodness, time code boxes. I had locket boxes for a bit, the, the ambient locket boxes. They're really big and bulky. So when those uh, tentacles came out, and I think those came out on like a Kickstarter campaign or something, I don't remember. But I, I invested in those things. I got three of those. And then just recently, over the past six months, I upgraded to the Betso time code boxes that have the all the wireless built in, so they talk to each other. And uh, those are really nice, because usually I'm running this um, multicam setup in the studio, 
whether it's my studio or, or some of the other sets that I work on. And so just being able to, you know, plug in the transmitter, the master of that Betso timecode box, and it jam and then automatically jam all the other cameras just saves a bunch of time. All right. Now, uh, what kind, what's your favorite headphones? I would have to say the ones I'm wearing right here. These Sennheiser, I think they're HD 25 twos, Mark twos. Yeah, they're great. And uh, the reason I like them, well, one, they're flat. And two, it's got this thing where you can just twist the, you know, one ear cup up uh, so that you could actually hear out of that ear. And then lightweight. Yeah, I, I don't really like the headphones that cover your ear completely because I still like situational awareness. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the projects you've worked on. I was going through your IMDb, and you worked on an adventure comedy called The Head Thieves. So what did you do on that film? The Head Thieves. Oh, wow. You know, I got to tell you, Michael, that's probably one of my most favorite projects that I've ever worked on. It was low budget, but it was really the product of a bunch of friends getting together and saying, let's make this feature film. We're going to make it happen. There was a little bit of budget, so we didn't all work free, but this, this is a, a kind of a dark comedy, and the, our executive producer is actually the lead actor. And he's really, you know, a lot of times you get into those situations where the investor wants to become the lead, and it just turns out to be a disaster because they're not really an actor, they just have a lot of money. But in this case, our lead in that, Mickey Gooch, was, uh, and also the financier, just a hilarious actor, very talented, and a lot of fun to be around. And then what had happened is our director, uh, Mike Hermosa, he wanted to shoot this thing up in Modesto, where, where he grew up. And so we went up there, and we ended up setting up trailers in his mom's backyard, you know, right in the middle of a cow field. And for two weeks, we lived, to, everybody lived together, the whole cast and crew. And, you know, we got up together together. Our call times weren't really that tight. We'd get up when we got up. You know, Mike's mom would go make us food, and we'd go in the house, shower up, eat, and then, you know, and then get on with our day. And it was really a very collaborative effort. There's no drama, just a lot, just a lot of fun. There are three main actors. There's Mickey, and then the other two were the Basco brothers, who's uh, Dante and Dion Basco. And they really brought a special element to it. They're both uh, great, great actors, uh, great comedic timing. Uh, Dante was a guy that I've known for a while. He's best known as Rufio from the movie Hook with uh, Steven Spielberg and Robin Williams. And so that's kind of where he, he made a name for himself. And he's just been working solidly ever since. So what was kind of the setup on that? You know, technically, what was the setup on that? You know, that was back then, I think I was using my 664 and I was carrying it around all day. There's very little on that movie. It was always in a car. They were always moving. Then we were in almond orchards. We're just all over the place. So there wasn't very much opportunity to just sit there and uh, operate from a cart. So most of that was done over my shoulder. And like I said, moving around at night, all these different situations it was tough at times. I had, a, I did have a boom up with me. It was kind of my boom slash utility. So that took uh, a lot of that off of me. So did you, were you miking up a lot of people at one time? 
there was really, you know, 99% of the time I was miking up only the three main actors and that was it. Uh, there'd be plant mics. Of course, there was other characters coming and going and it was very lively, much like reality really, because there was so much improv in it. Michael, the director really let these guys bring out their talents and add their own flair to the scenes. And Overall, I think it just made it a better movie that way. And so I really had to approach it like it was reality because, you know, sometimes you get these spontaneous, hilarious moments. It's just too hard to recreate with the same energy. Okay. So uh, you also worked on a show called Impact Theory as the production sound mixer. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Impact Theory is a show that I still work on. It's a fantastic show. It's actually the second generation of a talk show that was originally called Inside Quest. It's a talk show hosted by Tom Bilyeu, who's the founder, one of the founders of Quest Nutrition. And uh, he and his partners had built it to a billion-dollar company in less than five years and and uh, became one of the fastest-growing uh, companies in Inc. 500. And it's an amazing accomplishment. But when he built Quest, it was this mission to heal our bodies with uh, nutritious food for people on the go, athletes, entrepreneurs, that sort of thing. And then I think that after he had felt that he had accomplished that mission, he really wanted to dive into mindset and healing the way we think and, and instilling healthy mental habits in people. So he, he created Inside Quest, the predecessor to Impact Theory, and this is where he interviews uh, thought leaders, uh, billionaires, CEOs, authors, um, academics, uh, across all kinds of industries about what sort of attitudes and beliefs drive their success. And I have this personal interest in those sort of subjects and personal development. And I found the guest personally very fascinating and so every time i would go there and record an episode which were about an hour long i'm just glued to the thing just just listening to the content and then i'm able to take that same content and listen to it back and and i would furiously take notes when he separated from quest nutrition he restarted the show as impact theory and created a studio in his house and so of course, I went over with him on that project, and goodness, I think we're about two years in on Inside Quest, and and then uh, it's been two years already on Impact Theory. Okay, so that's an ongoing client that you have. Yeah, and and really, those are the sort of clients that I want right now. I'm, you know, going back, I really got into sound originally, wanting to become a director and producer. But I quickly found out that you have to understand the technical aspects of production in order to be an effective manager, i.e. director, producer. I just think there's, there's too many people in those spots that don't understand this technical part, and it handicaps them. But when you can understand the capabilities and you know the budgets and really what goes into a production especially when you're on a limited budget it makes it so much easier for everybody uh, for example sometimes i get hired for a small indie thing that's a lower budget and they tell me 
we can only give you two hundred fifty dollars, but we want you know six wireless and <laughs> yeah, all all kinds of stuff that you know they cost me ninety dollars a day to rent. It's just impossible, and they don't understand why. And then especially when they tell me that they don't have any budget for sound because they're hiring some guy with a red or Alexa for their YouTube video <laughs> and they've got to pay him $1,500. You know, there's a little bit of a disconnect and they don't, don't understand how important the sound element is. Now, speaking of sound, you need to tell the listeners, what are we hearing in the background there? Oh, <laughs> yeah. As I uh, talked about, I, I've got a, a, a puppy dog that is not feeling very well. So I brought her up to the studio and she's sitting in the chair next to me and, uh, guess when she gets snoring. in that deep sleep, she starts snoring. <laughs> <laughs> Just so everybody knows what we're hearing. Like, what is that noise? <laughs> right. Like you said, you weren't always in the film industry, so you actually began your career as a police officer, correct? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's been a long road. And back then, I would have never thought I would end up in Hollywood. I'll tell you that. Much less in front of the camera, which is where I find myself these days. But yeah, I mean, if you want to go way back, when I was in high school, I, was a, I volunteered at the local fire department, and um, I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, and they actually still had volunteer fire departments back then. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I ended up at the community college where I took courses as an, as an EMT and uh, eventually became a paramedic. And that was great for a while, but then I noticed these police officers would come into the station and tell us these cool stories about car chases and you know, going to the range and shooting their gun. And I just thought it was so cool and uh, made friends with a lot of these guys. So when a testing group came up, they said, hey, why don't you go test and try out, see, see if you can get in. So I did that and, and I made it in. So uh, I became a police officer and rotated through a bunch of departments there, mostly as a patrol officer, but I, I worked some time on vice narcotics and auto thefts uh, I was a field training officer later in, in that short five-year career and uh, trained a couple of rookies coming out of the academy. And uh, it was great. And had I stayed longer, I probably, I, I really wanted to be a canine officer and or a motorcycle cop because, you know, I want to be that chips guy. That's right. <laughs> that would have been a lot of fun. But uh, I left the police department after five years. I went back to school, and, and I ended up in law school. And then from, from law school, you would expect that I'd want to go into criminal law. But really, coming out of law school, you know, going the criminal track, you're either a prosecutor or you're a defense attorney. And prosecutors didn't make much money, and I was really into making money back then. And so I shifted into corporate work. And I ended up in investment banking uh, on Wall Street, uh, doing public offerings. And at the time, the internet was taking off. So there were a lot of these dot-coms until the dot-com bubble busted. And so uh, I left that sort of banking, the initial public offering world, and went into real estate finance. I uh, got a California real estate broker license and started selling real estate, doing commercial mortgages. Then about 10 years ago, the real estate market crashed. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, okay, I made all this money. I've, you know, I was down in Orange County at the time. 
I could rebuild again in this industry in finance, but I, I felt that that was a been there, done that thing. And in that whole journey, I just, I still felt that something was missing. So I made the conscious decision to uh, shift my attention to something more creative. I want to be a storyteller and impact people. I was, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about legacy more about that time. So that's what brought me to Hollywood. And I wanted to direct and produce and be, you know, a big director and uh, tell these big stories. Uh, but like I'd mentioned, I, I found out that it would really be better if I would start from the bottom. Well, let me back up on that. I had this friend who's, I say he's Hollywood royalty because he's a third generation filmmaker and very well-known guy. And he was kind of a mentor to me. And he told me that really to be a better director and producer, to learn the technical aspects, all the below the line stuff, whether that's us, you know, screenwriting or art department, lighting, uh, all the electrical work, uh, cinematography, sound, all that. It would, it would make you a much better manager. And so I took that to heart. And the tough part was learning to be a beginner again at the end of the day. Because coming from where I was, this big house in Orange County, a garage full of exotic cars, to working for minimum wage or less on a set as a PA, I mean, it was very humbling. But I, I think that by this time, I'd reinvented my career so many times that I kind of mastered the mindset required to be able to do that. And so, you know, I continued to seek out mentors and people that would help me and help me get jobs and just fine tune my craft. And I ended up hitting a lot of these departments and cinematography and sound, I really loved because I'm a gearhead and I liked all the buttons and just buying new gear and, and checking it out and trying it out and, and just having that kind of table talk with other camera guys and sound guys. I don't know why, but it, it really jazzed me up. So. <laughs> Now that you're directing and producing, how has your sound mixing experience kind of shaped how you direct? That's a good question. If anything, the way it affects the way I operate as a, as a manager, as a director or producer, is I really try to give the sound people, and as well as the other trades, the respect and the, the latitude to do their jobs that, that they're due. Early on in my my filmmaking career, I was on the other end of that where, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this could probably relate to this, where the camera guys, you know, everything was so focused on the camera work and it was almost like sound was a, like an afterthought. You know, sometimes you get on a set, you get on a set and you can't really go near it to, to set up anything or to prepare. The camera department would be in there. They take up all the time they're calling talent on set. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, sound guy, you can get in there and, you know, set up your gear. You know, you got like two minutes and then talent's there waiting. And that's like, yeah, waiting on sound. You know, it's great. Thanks guys. You just let me in here. <laughs> so, and you know, on, on the bigger, more professional sets, you didn't see that as much because they knew kind of what was going on. But when, when it came to the newer filmmakers, the indies the, that are they're low budget, which is the world I was in, not having to been to film school or anything, 
uh, I was having to deal with a lot of that stuff. And I realized a lot of these people were learning. So, you know, you try to cut them a little break, but still sometimes that irked you. Now, having been there, are you tough on your sound department? Well, just like any other department, I just want them to do their job and do it in a professional way. I wouldn't say I'm tough as far as, you know, I'm not, I'm not cracking the whip. The key is I, I try to hire right in the beginning so that I don't have those problems. And that's worked out pretty well for me. Now, when you were working sound on set, what was your worst on set experience? You don't have to give any names, but if you could tell a scenario. <laughs> Early on, there would be minor mishaps, forgetting to roll sound <laughs> on a take. That, that I did early on, uh, that's really embarrassing. That, that really didn't result in any big blow-ups or anything like that. We just did the takeover again. I just tried to stay focused on the job, and if something happens, then you know you, you just roll through it. You, you have to have a certain figure-outableness about what you're doing and make the best of the situation. Now, did you ever forget any audio gear when you were going to set? I've forgotten batteries before. That's kind of a disaster, but you know, that's when you slide a little money over to the PA. Can you go grab me some batteries real quick? <laughs> but yeah, no, really nothing. I, I think I'm fortunate, Michael, that I haven't had anything really bad happen on set. I should knock on wood here. <laughs> All right. Now, in your in your early years in doing audio, did you do your taxes yourself? Did you have a CPA? When it came to freelance and juggling expendables and all sorts of things, uh, do you have any you know tips on that and or your approach? The best thing that I did for myself was I got a QuickBooks subscription. I use QuickBooks online and try to keep on you know when checks come in or invoices go out or expenses. Uh, at least once a week, I try to just stay on top of that so that when tax time comes, it's really just sharing the file or printing a report and sending it over to your, to your tax guy. And it just really simplifies everything. So I think that's the best advice that I could give there. And then he would help me with um, as far as equipment and supplies purchases and you know, kind of where I stand coming up to the end of the year so that I can plan accordingly. All right. Now, uh, when it comes to miking up talent, do you have any specific expendables that you like to use? You know, I use a lot of double stick and moleskin. There were these little clips that I used one time. They were like the smooth uh, plastic clips that you could stick your mic into that I use for hiding mics a lot uh, that seem to be pretty effective. I don't remember what they're called, though. Was that the RM11s for the cost 11 mics? Yeah, no, those are the things that come with the cost 11s, but um, yeah. no, it's not those. Uh, those I used a lot. In fact, on that Head Thieves movie, I think I used probably used those almost exclusively. Um, but then I found these other things, and they were more of a smooth plastic so that when they did rub on clothes or something, there's no friction that you, you know, that would cause a rubbing sound. And I was just really impressed with those things. And I still use them today on the talk show, although. On the show, I don't hide the mics, uh, usually. Usually, it's just for backup mics or something else. A lot of times on these shows, you know, with social media and everything, the guests come in with their own video team that are, like, filming behind the scenes, and they've got all their mic stuff working also. I always worried about the quality of their transmitters and, and that causing RF interference with my gear. 
But some, you know, it's a consideration these days. It's I see it more and more. All right. Well, let's let's change gears a little bit here. And you you've written a book, so tell us about your book. Well, thanks for asking. Uh, it has nothing to do with sound, but more mindset. As I had mentioned, I've really been into personal development and like to study uh, people who you know uh, guys like Tony Robbins and. John Gray and these great authors and thought leaders and neuroscientists who talk about what healthy attitudes and beliefs are, what mindsets drive success. And in a decade of talking to these people, uh, using them as virtual mentors, i.e. watching their videos and reading their books and just watching what they have online as well as talking to them in person, and people that I've that I've met on set and just in other settings been able to interact with, I discovered, and this isn't my an original discovery, but through that I I discovered for myself that really the key to success is getting your mental your mindset straight first. I would say that life mastery begins with mind mastery, and this is a message. It's I guess it's kind of a through line in everything that I do right now, whether it's uh, the things that I write, the movie projects that I go after, the jobs that I accept, and even my show that I do now, everything revolves around this idea of mindset. It's really kind of that been that driving force in what I want to do and, and what I want my mission to be and uh, what I want to be remembered for going forward. How would uh, say you know some of the mindset principles in your book? How could that be applied to to those in the production sound world? You know, all these mindsets, everything that I talk about in the book and otherwise, is really universal to all kinds of success in any endeavor. And if you want to talk about that specifically to the production world, I talk about things like a mission mindset and an action mindset which really goes to uh, setting intention, acting with intention. If you want to be a director or if you want to be the best sound guy there is out there or cinematographer or whatever, what I teach says, you know, set that intention and make that the focus. And, you know, as you go through your work life, anything that doesn't forward that intention, then you exclude, you know, of course, not including family in your personal life, but as far as, you know, professional opportunities will come around. And like a lot of people, I get bombarded with that all the time. But I, I use these mindsets and uh, more specifically this intention of mission to be a filter for these opportunities that come in. And I ask myself, okay, there's this opportunity. Does this, will this opportunity move me towards my goal or not? Or is it just a distraction? And uh, so it makes it very easy. If, it, if, if the answer is it doesn't actually move me forward towards my goal, then it's excluded. But if it does, then it's something to consider. And then the action mindset, it says that it's about taking ownership and responsibility for things that happen in your life. Meaning it's one thing to set an intention, but then you have to take action on it. You have to, you have to put these things in motion. They say that when opportunity comes, you have to be prepared. 
and that this action is that preparation part for it. Because if, if you don't help yourself, nobody else is going to help you. The the universe, unlike some you know woo woo stuff I've heard out out there, you're not just going to get handed success. You have to you have to make a you have to take an action towards towards something, and then the opportunities will come. There's a lot of things. My book is called Spark: The Eight Mental Habits of Highly Successful People. So I lay out uh, eight mental habits or, or mindset principles to follow. Do you want me to tell you what those are? Yeah, go down the line. I'll just I'll just list. I won't go too deeply in here because it's really getting off topic for you know a location sound podcast. But I, I just think it's 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 very important. So the first one is like I mentioned, a mission mindset. Intention has to do with intention. Secondly is an action mindset, which is about taking responsibility. This is anti entitlement. And it's, it's taking extreme responsibility for everything that happens in your life. Number three is a mindset of creativity. This is developing the confidence to know that you can handle in any unknown situation that comes your way. It's that sense of figureoutableness that allows you to go into unknown situations and not freak out. We all have this innate intuition that guides us in this way. And so when you can learn to trust that more, then you will have developed this, this mindset of creativity. Fourth is a, is a connection mindset. And this has to do with empathy and authenticity and most importantly, presence when you're talking to other people. This is very important as a manager. And also if you're trying to get jobs, you know, we're oftentimes when we try to connect with other people, we're so distracted by other things. Uh, I'm sure you've experienced, especially you know these days, you're talk, having a conversation with somebody and they're checking their phone or something like that, and it's not right. You know, you as long as you're in front of somebody, I know we're all busy and everything, but you you really should try to stay present uh, with that person. And when you can do that, it really makes a big difference, especially today, because 90% of the people don't do it, and and so 90% of people don't feel heard by the other person. So connection is number four. That's very important. Number five is the mindset of abundance versus scarcity. This is the idea that there is an abundance of opportunity for everyone. So you don't have to worry about competing with other sound mixers for a job. You don't have to worry about you know anything else that's going on. All you have to worry about is doing your job to the best of your ability creating value, and serving the project in the best way possible. If you can do that, then you will find that more opportunities for jobs will come your way. And I, I firmly believe that. Number six would be the growth mindset. This is probably one of the most important to me, the growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. The growth mindset is the idea that we can accomplish anything that we dream of, anything that we're willing to work hard enough for, regardless of our past circumstances. Meaning, I don't care if you grew up in the ghetto. I don't care if you don't have a high school education. I don't care if you spent time in jail. What's important is where you are today and where you're moving forward. Too many people have limiting beliefs around that. They say, oh, well, look where I came from. Look who my parents are. I can never be a doctor. Or I'm too old 
to start over in the film industry and become a director or a sound guy or whatever you want to do. And all it takes is a belief that you can actually do it. But it takes, it takes work. And oftentimes it takes a bit of humility to be able to set aside kind of your ego and be willing to learn. And you can do anything that you want. That's a core part of my message. Number seven is a mindset of uh, generosity. This is at its core. It's about kindness and just being a good person to your fellow man. And it's about charity and uh, giving without expectation of receiving anything back. Because I believe that when you can let go of what you get back in return, then things come full circle. It may not be that person that you've helped out that is able to do something for you, but it's, you know, the universe works in this funny way where it will come back and, you know, hit you from behind and you're going to go, wow, where'd that opportunity come from? This thing just landed in my lap and I didn't do anything. Well, maybe you did do something and you're getting rewarded for it. So that's very important. And then finally, number eight is the mindset of gratitude. We in the Western world are so fortunate to be where we are. You know, you hear about people, they, they uh, lose their job or they lose all their money and they want to go kill themselves or something because they're so depressed. <laughs> you know, to, to me, if you live in this country, you have nothing to be that upset about that you're going to go kill yourself. I mean, there's, there's millions of people in the world that are starving, that are sleeping on the ground in the middle of the desert or in some jungle or something that have far less than we do. And uh, funny enough, a lot of them are, are happy because they're grateful for what they have. They have family, they have people around them, they, they have their basic needs. It's when we start comparing ourselves with other people and what other people have or what, or what we're lacking in comparison to other people that tends to make us unhappy. But happiness is a choice. You can choose to be happy at any time. And when you understand that, you can't be depressed about anything because gratitude is, is an emotion that when you have it, it excludes all these other negative emotions. They just can't, they just can't exist. Thank you for sharing all the different pieces there. So, so the name of the book is called Spark, The Eight Mental Habits of Highly Successful People. That's right. And now where can we find that book? It's available on Amazon. That's probably the best way to do it. There's a direct link if you go to my website, jmenez.com slash spark. It will take you to the Amazon site. Uh, very soon, I hope to have an, an audiobook version of it out because that's a lot of people have been asking about that because it's easier to consume, much like podcasts. You know, you don't have to dedicate yourself to sitting in front of a book. You can just listen to it and multitask at the same time. Yeah, we love that. <laughs> we always ask the question, too, if some of our listeners wanted to get into location sound, what would you recommend they do? And since you've kind of done multiple roles in the film industry, what would you tell young sound mixers or young sound professionals trying to get started? As somebody who has reinvented themselves multiple times, I consider myself kind of a... I know that I'm pretty good at going into new industries. And so whether you're reinventing your career and you're in your midlife or you're straight out of school and 20 years old 
and uh, want to get into it. it. It's really the same thing that I tell everybody, and that is I, I'm a big believer in mentorship. And that means one virtual mentorship, which is there's so many resources online, many of them free, that you can learn about your craft and, and, and practice and YouTube videos and uh, resources like this show where you can get in educational information and also get inspired and benefit from the advice that you hear on, on things like this. I was lucky to be able to connect with some more seasoned sound mixers that would allow me to tag along with them and early on and kind of look over the shoulder. Now, in this process, you have to be willing to work for free. Now, I understand a lot of people, you know, you can't work that much for free because, you know, some people move out here and they want to work and get into the business, but they got to pay their bills. But you really have to look at it as, you know, short of film school, where if you want to learn, you have to pay them gobs of money. If you're lucky enough to find a mentor that will take you under their wing and show you the ropes and not charge you for it, you've got to look at the situation as basically free education. They're not paying you, sure, but you're getting all this value. The value is probably worth tons more than that would, what they would pay you. Now, the next question, though, is, how, well, how do I find a mentor willing to spend that time with me? Because I get a lot of people, whether it's film production or other sorts of coaching, I always get people reaching out to me and they want me to mentor them and give them advice or just spend time with them on the phone. And, and honestly, I try to do as much of that as I can at, at no charge, but still I can't do a whole lot of that because I've got other things going on. So, and I imagine that when you reach out to another sound mixer, somebody more seasoned that you may want to learn from, they too are going to have other obligations. So the key is to create a value for value proposition. So find out what this individual, especially if they're on social media, it's, it's very easy to find out what their interests are, what, what they like, and approach them with a value proposition. As in, don't ask them, especially Cole, don't, don't walk up to people or DM people asking for something, i.e., will you mentor me? Uh, that's the wrong way to go about it because you'll probably get a no most of the times, I imagine. But if you come into it and offer some value up front, well, this is, I know that this is what you need or I suspect this is what you need and I can help you in that department. And in exchange, you know, maybe you could show me a few things. That's a much better way to, to go about it. I, I know that for me, social media has always been a challenge. So when somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I can do your social media graphics or I can help you get traffic or I just somebody who's sharing my content and liking and commenting and getting the word out there, that's tremendous value to me. And I'm more likely to respond in a you know positive way to that person. So mentorship is a, a very powerful uh, way to get started. And also, you know, you'll meet people and get opportunities for other jobs too. All right. Well, Jay, as we kind of start to wrap things up, uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? The best way is really my website is the hub of everything that I do, jmenez.com, J-A-Y-M-E-N-E-Z.com. 
And then on social media, I'm at the Jay Menez. Well, Jay, I want to say thanks to Jay Menez for being on the show today. Well, thanks to you, Michael. You know, I appreciate you having me on, and it's an honor. Thank you so much. And a big thanks to all of our listeners out there. If you'd like us to discuss a particular topic, please send us an email at locationsoundpodcast at gmail.com. We would love for you to subscribe and leave us a comment. We're available on Apple Podcasts, and for Android users, check out Google Podcasts. Also, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, sound is half the picture.